The reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 1, commencing at verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have the church Bibles with you, that's on page 965 on the small ones and 1058 and the large ones. Matthew chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Thank you, Tom. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you this morning. And uh, I'm really looking forward to um, this little series. As uh, Wellesley's explained, over the next uh, four Sundays, uh, up until and including uh, Christmas Eve, we're going to just be focusing in on, on Matthew chapter 2. And I'll explain a little bit more about that uh, in a moment. Uh, but we've already had one quiz this morning, but um, because it's nearly Christmas and we all have Christmas quizzes, we're going to have another one. Uh, this one's very simple. Um, I'm sure if Tia was here, she'd get all the answers right, as she's proved from the first quiz. But here are the three questions for you. You can just answer these in your head if you like. Um, question number one, who visited Jesus with the gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh? There's your first question. Second question, how many of these people were there? And third question, where did they come from? Little quiz. I guess to the answer to that first question, um, who visited Jesus with the gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh? Many people would have answered, well, three kings did. Uh, I want to show us from Matthew chapter 2 that they probably weren't actually kings. They probably worked for kings. They were probably not kings, though. I'm going to explain that later on. Uh, How many were there? I imagine most people said three. Um, we have no idea how many there were. We assume there were three because there were three gifts. Maybe one gift per person. Um, but the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere how many of these people came to Jesus. Uh, and where did they come from? 
Um, well, we know somewhere in the east, we sing, don't we, that carol, carol um, we three kings of Orient are, um, which may not be the most accurate, because they possibly weren't kings, there possibly weren't three of them. Um, some postcards from Christmas, Christmas cards, have pictures of sort of Chinese-looking kings coming from China, hence where the word Orient comes from. But actually, I did a bit of digging around, and apparently in the German language, uh, Orient is used in the expression more of just um, the Arab world, and so possibly they came from the Arab world. Uh, but why do I tell you those things? The reason is, is sometimes the Christmas story can get a bit hijacked, either by a Christmas carol that we become very familiar with, or by maybe a Christmas card. And the images on that inform what the Bible says, rather than the Bible informing what's on the Christmas card. And so I want us to slow down this Christmas. Normally we kind of look at different stories in the Christmas story in the Bible, jumping around different Gospels. But this year I've decided to focus the next four weeks just on Matthew chapter 2. And as we slow down and look at these words, I hope we'll find there are lots of things within these chapters that perhaps we haven't seen before, that there's a lot more in it than just a very simple story, as we might assume, of three kings coming to visit Jesus. Uh, And I've got two aims with this little series as we do slow down. The first one is that I will hopefully help you, and I pray that you can help me, to truly worship the Lord Jesus this Christmas. I was at a, a, a training thing recently, and um, the lady who was speaking was talking to Christian leaders, and she was talking about whether or not, as a leader, you have what she called white space, white space in your life. Um, she also referred to it as strategic pause. What she meant by this is that our lives get so, so busy, so, so full, often our lives don't look like the white, clean bit of paper on the screen behind me, but our lives look more like this. Just full, busy, sometimes overwhelming. And she was challenging us as leaders, do you create enough white space in your life just to slow down and think? She was saying, as leaders, you often get busier, but are you getting better? And if you take that concept and apply it to your own life, often we would say our lives are getting busier, but are they always getting busier with what is best? And so I hope and pray that we'll be able to slow down this Christmas and really focus on what Christmas is about. I've already had conversations with two or three people in the church who are already feeling completely overwhelmed about Christmas. Two of these individuals talked to me in November and were genuinely very stressed about Christmas, about all the presents they had to buy for a big family. And Christmas was overwhelming them in November. And I can see why it perhaps could, but I want to hope and pray that we would create some white space in our lives this year so we can really worship Jesus afresh and not just be distracted with the busyness of our lives. Uh, The second aim for this little series is that it would help you and me to have a growing hunger or zeal for speaking of Jesus um, with a lost and broken world. And when I was up in Buckingham recently doing some training with them, one of the seminars I did over our Sunday lunchtime was helping them to think about what it looks like to be a missional church, looking outwards to a lost and broken world. And I said to them, at the end of the day, you could read any number of books on evangelism. You could go to any number of training events on how to share your faith with others. But at the end of the day, what it all boils down to is A Christian who's had a life transformed by Jesus, speaking to someone for whom that's not true about Jesus. That's all it is. And I know that there's complexity with that. We get scared, we get anxious, we haven't got all the answers to questions we might want. But at the end of the day, evangelism is about talking to people about Jesus. And so I want to challenge us, and I I pray that you can challenge me this Christmas. How are we doing with that? Are we ready at the front door with some little tracks to hand out to 
to, to people who come, you know, maybe the postman or the um, DHL delivery man. When we engage with people at the supermarket uh, and we're asking them about their shift and how they're doing, uh, we can be bold and invite them to a carol service or wish them a happy Christmas. Little things often, but very powerful things. So I pray that we will all really truly worship the Lord Jesus this Christmas, maybe by creating that white space in our life. And I pray that we will all grow to have a greater hunger and zeal to speak of Christ to our world. So come to Matthew chapter 2, and this morning we're actually just going to look at two verses. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And those verses are up on the screen behind me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So let's get our, little, our bearings a little bit so we can just understand what's going on. Here's a, here's a map, and you can see it on the screen behind me. Here's um, Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, down in the south of Israel. You've got Galilee in the north, where Jesus lived and performed most of his miracles and his ministry was based. And the area in the middle is Samaria. So we're here in Bethlehem, and it's about six miles south of Jerusalem. And we read that it's the birthplace of David. Why is Matthew drawing attention to the fact that Bethlehem was where David was born? Well, David, all the way through the Bible, is held up as a model king. He's the the great king of the people of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 7 tells us all about that. And so here, to read of Jesus being born in Bethlehem isn't just stating the place he's born, but it's deliberately meant to, to make us think about David, who was king. Because just as King David was born in Bethlehem, so this king, Jesus, would be born in Bethlehem too. We read in the verse, don't we, that he was born in the province of Judea. That was a Roman province. And at the time, the ruling power there was King Herod. And this is him, Herod the Great. He was a very paranoid king. He was a very insecure king. Built these great lavish palaces, often high up on the hilltop so he could scour the horizon and look for invading armies. He was a very paranoid king. And he was the king at the time when Jesus was born. And then we read, don't we, of these magi. Uh, Some of your translations of the Bible may say wise men. Well, they probably weren't actually kings. They they probably weren't even necessarily particularly wise men. Um, They were more likely to have been astrologers, um, kind of stargazers or horoscope fanatics, probably working somewhere like in Persia for a foreign king, working maybe in the civil service. So when you read of the magi here in Matthew chapter 2, think of... Um, the magicians in the book of Daniel that we've looked at not that long ago think of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 that's much more probably much closer to who these wise men these magi were Uh, a lot is often made of the three gifts that these wise men or these magi bring to Jesus gold, frankincense and myrrh often people will draw attention to the threefold kind of ministry of Jesus as king the gold represents him as king As priests, the frankincense used in um, priestly duties in the temple and myrrh um, used to embalm bodies, Um, prophet, priest and king. But actually at an even more simple level, gold, frankincense and myrrh were elements that were used in magic by these kind of sorcerer, magician type people. One of the 5th century Greek historians, Herodotus, talks about the wise men being people from uh, uh, the area of Persia or Lebanon who had come uh, and uh, served, served foreign kings in the worship um, of fo- false gods. The idea was that they could interpret messages that these false gods had given to the kings. So this is who these kind of astrologers, these horoscope fanatics were. 
And we read, don't we, at the last bit of that verse, they come to Jerusalem on some sort of pilgrimage, maybe an entry, maybe the foreign king for whom they worked heard that a new king was to be born and so sent these astrologers to find out who this king was to be. And interestingly, these wise men, these magi, only appear in Matthew's gospel. Of the four gospels, only here. So Matthew deliberately wants to draw attention to who they are, and there's lots and lots that we can learn from them. So do you see in verse 2, these magi come and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We've come, we've seen his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now there's all sorts of speculation as to what this star was. Was it an actual star? Was it a planet? Was it some sort of angelic being? But interestingly, Matthew doesn't draw a lot of attention to this star other than stating it was a star. Because his focus isn't on the detail of exactly what it was that was drawing these wise men to Jesus. Matthew's focus is on the purpose of the star. And the purpose of the star was to draw these foreign people from a distant land to this very random place in Bethlehem to meet this absolutely extraordinary king. And there's something compelling about this star, whatever it was, something compelling that was drawing these people. Why would they come to Bethlehem? Why would they come to worship a baby lying in a feeding trough? There was something compelling about this Jesus. And we've just learned, didn't we, as well as he was speaking to the children earlier, One of the names given to Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us, that tiny baby, the magnificent God who flung stars into space, who came and invaded time and space, born into this world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And there was something so extraordinary, extraordinarily compelling about this baby Jesus that was drawing these magi to come to him. What I'd love us to see from this passage this morning Firstly, is that you or I were created to worship. Just as these magi come and they see Jesus and say, we've come, where is he? We've come to worship him. That's a little indication to you and me that you and I were born to worship ourselves. Lots of different definitions of the word worship, but I think this might be helpful to us. Worship is centering our affections around something or someone that gives our life meaning. Or to boil it down to something even simpler, worship is asking ourselves the question, what is it that I live for? Because however I'd answer that question would be a pretty strong indication of what it is that I worship. So just take a moment to think about that question for yourself. What is it that you live for? Maybe some of these questions will provoke you to think a bit more. What is it that inspires you? All sorts of things in life that inspire me. What is it that inspires you the most? What or who is it that sustains you? What or who is it that gives you your deepest sense of joy and meaning? What or who do you most long to speak about with other people? It's not a sort of simple A plus B equals C, but some of these questions might provoke us to think a little bit about what it is that I live for. And the answer is, whatever I live for is the thing that I worship. It's the thing that in my life is the very most important thing to me. 
Uh, a week or two ago, we had a, a great discussion in our life group, which is the name we give to our home group on a Tuesday evening. And um, as we were doing the Bible overview series that a lot of different groups are working through, um, some of the group had some questions from the book of Genesis. So we kind of paused what we were doing and we went back to Genesis and we were looking at some of these really great questions that people were asking. But after we got um, stuck in lots of the detail, and there were great questions, I remember saying to the group, well, let's just step back a little bit, because if we ask the big picture of what the Bible's all about, there's loads and loads of questions you'll ask of it, well, you won't necessarily get an answer. There's tons of questions I've got about the book, about the book of Genesis that I don't have answers to. But actually, what is the focus of this book? And indeed, what's the focus of the whole Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation? It's a book all about relationship. It's a book about a God who's passionate about knowing the people he created. It's a book about how that God has come to rescue the people he has created. Rescue them from themselves. Rescue me from myself. Rescue you from yourself. Because we naturally turn inward and take our eyes off him. It's a book all about an adventure of a life of joy with him, Jesus Christ, at the centre. And so if worship is centering my affections around something or someone that gives my life meaning, what do I live for? True worship, the Bible would say, is centering my affections around Jesus Christ, who gives my life meaning. If we're honest with ourselves, and I have to ask myself the same question, am I able to say that my life is all about Jesus? I live for him. He's the source of everything. He's the purpose for everything, because that is what the Bible describes true worship being. Not that other things are not important. It's not that other things can't give us satisfaction and joy. It's that there's one thing, one person who is ultimate, who's the source of all those good things. And so when we read here of the wise men coming to worship Jesus, it's worth us pausing this Christmas in that kind of white space that we need to pray for, to ask, well, what does that worship really look like? And I think actually if our lives revolve more around Jesus than perhaps the other good things that they do revolve around, maybe our lives would be less full of the striving that plagues many of us. Striving to perform, striving to please people, striving not to upset others. Life's often very frantic, aren't they? But when I get my identity from who Jesus is, I don't need to strive in the same way that I would have to if I got my identity from something else. If Jesus Christ was centre of my life, how much more would I know a deep sense of peace through the afflictions of the things that we go through? Knowing Jesus as my saviour doesn't take away my afflictions, but it anchors them in something that's more permanent, more real, a source of greater peace and joy than I'll find anywhere else. And I was thinking a bit about this as well. Maybe when our lives are more anchored around Jesus, we'll be able to experience joy in the simple things in life. I won't always be pursuing the next best experience, but I can actually just thank God for the simple things that he blesses me with every single day, that I just overlook the wonderful things that perhaps we celebrate at Christmas. I pray, friends, that this Christmas we will slow down enough just to think afresh about what true worship is. Think about what it is that I center my affections on. And pray that God would recapture my heart, recapture our hearts, that this Christmas we would truly worship him as number one. I said at the beginning, two aims for this series. Firstly, that we will worship Jesus. Secondly, that we'll have a greater hunger and zeal to speak of him with a lost and broken world. And I just want to show us four little surprises from these two verses that would encourage us, perhaps this Christmas, to be bolder in speaking about Jesus Christ with our friends and family. 
Here's the first surprise. Did you notice that it was the nations who come to Jesus Christ? Yes, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the other end, Matthew 28, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Go and make disciples of all nations. He sends them out to the nations. But at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we see the nations coming to Jesus. People are drawn to Jesus and then he sends them out. And if you think about how this works, our vision as a church is to see lives changed by Christ. And when our lives are so transformed by Jesus, the natural thing is we want to worship him as number one, Lord of all. And when our hearts truly worship him as Lord of all, it naturally leads to worship. I can't have my life so changed by this man, Jesus Christ, and not want to speak of him. I can't. And so if we're struggling with our witness, we mustn't start with our witness, we must start with our worship. Because when I have a right view of who this person is, it will encourage me to want to share him. So surprise number one you see in these two little verses is that the nations are coming to worship Jesus. And it's perhaps from that worship that they're then sent out at the end of Matthew's gospel to be a witness for him. Second little surprise, notice it's Gentiles who come to Jesus. All the way through the Bible, there are two groups of people. There are the Jews who were historically God's people and there were Gentiles representing everybody else. But when Jesus Christ comes into the world, everything changes because his special people are no longer just the Jewish nation. His special people are all people he's drawing to himself. Everything changes with Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting here that Matthew draws attention to some of the first visitors who come to this baby. They're not Jews, but they've come to worship. And yet it was only the Jews who worshipped the living God up until this point. But what God is showing us here through these magi who come and visit baby Jesus is that the gospel is for all people, not just for Jewish people. Third little surprise, and we've already touched on this, even pagan idol worshippers come to King Jesus. These kind of magicians, these horoscope fanatics represented everything that stood against worship of the living God. It represented pagan worship of false deities. People in the ancient world would have worshipped the stars rather than worshipping the living God who created the stars. And these, worship, these stargazers were no different. They would have worshipped the stars as deities. And yet even people whose lives are worshipping completely the wrong thing are here drawn to baby Jesus. Here's an amazing truth. God isn't calling to himself nice people or calling to himself people who were brought up in a Christian home or calling to himself people who were born into a so-called Christian country. God is drawing to himself people of all nations, all backgrounds. Because he doesn't draw to himself on the basis of people being good or sorted or knowing certain things or being born into certain homes. He draws people to himself on the basis of his love and his grace alone I noticed too that God used what was familiar to these people and drew them to them stars were very familiar it's what they studied it's what they worshipped so that God used what was familiar to these men and used that to draw them to himself I just want to encourage you as you think about sharing your faith this Christmas one of the things that perhaps can make it easier for you is to think about how can you establish some common ground start with something that is common to you and the person you're witnessing to. Uh, around Christmas time, people are really creative, aren't they? Christmas decorations, creative food, Christmas cards. We love to be creative. Art, even. 
Don't we worship a creative God? And as you express yourself in creativity in the arts, you're expressing a little picture of what God is like, the perfect creator God. At Christmas time, we love community. We love coming together as families. Isn't it an amazing thing when people put so much value on family, as important as that is at Christmas, to be able to speak of a family that goes beyond the walls of my home, where God is drawing to himself this family. For many people, Christmas is actually a lonely time, remembering bereavements, remembering lost ones and loved ones who made memories in the past but who are no longer with us. Christmas can be a really difficult time. How can I establish common ground with someone for whom Christmas is difficult? Well, I can speak of a God who's not immune from pain, who's not immune from loneliness. This baby Jesus who went to the cross and was abandoned. God knows what it's like to be lonely, and yet he calls us to himself. If we can establish some common ground with people, then suddenly people can have their eyes open to see that the gospel is relevant. It speaks to our greatest desires. And I think here, as you see these wise men being drawn to Jesus through a star, the very thing that they obsessed about, maybe just a little indication that God uses normal things around us that we're interested in to draw us to himself. And fourth little surprise, just look at these men's commitment. If they came from Babylon, that would have been a journey of about 800 miles. It would have taken over 40 days. If they'd come further from the east in Persia, it would have been a journey of over a 1,000 miles. But there was something so compelling about this star that these foreign men were drawn to Bethlehem that first Christmas to this tiny baby lying in a manger. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because there were people born in Judea, Jesus' own family who wouldn't even come. To witness the birth. And yet there were foreign people from thousands of miles away. And they would come. The point of this is that when the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit gets hold of a person's heart. And is drawing us to himself. There's nothing that can stop him. And it doesn't matter how far we are from God. It doesn't matter how long we've lived without God at the center of our lives. If God gets hold of our heart and draws us to himself. There's nothing that can stop it. Because none of us came to faith through our intellect or through being in the right place at the right time. All of us came to faith, those who have, because God drew us. And he can draw us from next door. Or he can draw us from a thousand miles away. Because God, as we saw at the beginning of the service, is a very big God. So friends, we weren't created this Christmas to worship stuff, as enjoyable as stuff can be. We weren't created to worship our work as fulfilling as that can be. We weren't created to worship our families as intimate and joyful as those times can be. We were, worship, we were created to worship the source of all things. And so as I said at the beginning, I pray that we will worship God this Christmas and I pray that we'll have a greater zeal to speak of him. Just as I close, I want to draw a sort of continuum here. Imagine this is one here. And down this end is number 10. And it's a continuum of zeal. One being, if I'm honest, I don't really have much zeal for God right now. And I don't have that much of a desire to share him with others. And there'll be some who are there. Don't beat yourself up if you're one, but just acknowledge it. 10. If you're at 10, that's a wonderful thing. I'd love to be at 10 every day of my life. I know I'm not. I'm definitely not at the moment, but I want to be. 
But wherever you are on this continuum of a zeal and love for Christ and a desire to share him this Christmas, where are you from one to ten? The question I want to ask you, and I ask myself this as well, is what's stopping us being ten? Because perhaps that's the one thing that, if we're honest, in our life at the moment is more important to us than him. The one thing that this Christmas maybe we could surrender to him. I said a couple of weeks ago, and I was speaking in the evening, I've been reading some books by a man called Oz Guinness, and he writes in one of his books a description of our world being what he calls a liquid world. What he means by that is we're living in a world that's very fluid, that's constantly changing, and it feels like everything is weightless. Kind of, There's so little that anchors us anymore as a society. And he takes this idea of being in a liquid world, a weightless world, and he compares that with another word, very similar, weightiness weightless and weightiness and he says weightiness has very strong links with the word glory in the bible because the root of the word glory is that which is solid and he says do you want to be a person do you want to be people this christmas who live in a weightless world not really anchored to anything what's the purpose of my life or do you want to live in a weighty world where you're anchored and you have an identity and a purpose that's so clear And the challenge he puts to us in this book is that a weighty world comes when we capture afresh the true glory of who God is. Because it's God's glory that anchors us in something that is so permanent, so joyful, so awe-inspiring, that nothing else betters it. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses dared to pray a really dangerous prayer. And I reckon it would be a wonderful prayer for each of us to pray this Christmas. Moses prayed this, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your weightiness. Show me your value, your worth, your majesty, your greatness, your bigness. And so my prayer for us all this Christmas is, like the Magi, we would indeed worship Jesus and as we worship him this is what would change our hearts that we would be sent out to speak of him that other people this Christmas would have the joy that you have of knowing him as your Lord and your saviour I pray this little series through Matthew chapter 2 will continue to help us as we journey together to that Christmas time Amen Amen